Good morning, New Life. How's everybody doing? Good, good. It's so good to see you, each and every one of you that are here live. I just want to welcome everybody who's joining us online right now. I want to give a shout out to our church family in North Platte. We love you guys. And also to everybody down at the venue, can you just give a big shout? Hey, thanks for joining in with them. All right, that's awesome. Hey, my name is Chris Puccini. I'm the executive pastor here at New Life and also serve on the teaching team. And how many are with me? And you are loving this series on the book of James. James, where faith collides. Now, James is one of my favorite books, but I say that about every book of the Bible. But uh, really, just to be honest with you, it's, it's a great, it's a great book. Uh, James is the brother of Jesus. He is... Uh, the pastor of the first century church, and he really writes a great letter that helps us understand how faith collides with real life. And so we're going to be uh, looking at James chapter 2. If you have your Bibles or your version app, open that up. Hit the live event if you have version. It's going to take you right to the notes. But if your Bible, open it up to James uh, chapter number 2. And uh, we're just going to go uh, right into week number 3. Um, we realize that there are people that are listening, that are joining at one of our campuses here live uh, to, with us today at when I say live, what I'm really referring to is those that are, can see me in live in the flesh here in Kearney. Um, but we realize that there are, there are people uh, all over the spiritual journey spectrum. And that includes some of you that you have yet to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Or maybe you've wandered away and you're not living a surrendered life to Christ. And so every Sunday we don't take the time to uh, intellectually try to convince you that the Bible is the authoritative word of God and it is true and that everything we're preaching from today it, you can trust and rely upon. Uh, but we do believe that the Bible is 100% accurate, true. It's the authoritative word of God. That means it's 100% infallible in the original language in which it was inspired and written. And since most of us don't speak Hebrew or New Testament Greek or Aramaic, we use a modern day translation of that Bible. Uh, but we believe it is God's word. It has the power to transform lives. And so while you have maybe yet to trust Christ, you're not really even sure about Jesus or the Bible. Uh, our prayer is that God's word, because it is his word, that he will today reveal himself to you through the foolishness of preaching. God's going to reveal himself to you. He's going to show up today. How many have been praying that way or can just begin to pray that way with me? If you're a believer here today, God's going to show up and he's going to do something cool today. I think it's a good thing to even prepare in your hearts. If you're a Christian, you come to church, it can become routine. Prepare in your heart, God, what are you going to say to me today? And prepare in your heart to respond to the Lord, whether that's at an altar or in some way, God, you have something for me and I want to be prepared to respond to your word today. And so we're going to be looking at God's word and we're, going to unapolog- we're not going to apologize for that because uh, I'm preaching today and so I'm not apologizing for that. But, and I need God's word in my life. I need God's word in my life. God's word needs to speak to me. And, and, and so the reason why is because I'm not perfect. And, and so that's the confession I want to make to you today is, is I'm still a work in progress. And, and historically in my life, I've, I've wrestled with things like pride and insecurity. How many are with me? You've wrestled with that. How many are too prideful and insecure to admit it? <laughs> right? And I've wrestled with that, and, and to, to some degree, I still wrestle with that. And so I'm going to share from that perspective, because, you know, us preachers can sometimes try to put on a, put on a, a you know, what's, what's the word, an, an act 
that we have it all together. You know, you know, like this, some preachers do this. None of our preachers here at New Life do this, but some do, where they're going to use an illustration, and it is from some TV show that they probably don't want you to know that they watch, right? And so what do they do? They say, you know, the other night I was flipping through the channels, you know what I mean? Flipping through the channels, trying to find the Discovery Channel, because only, you know, that's all the pastors watch, Discovery Channel, Christian TV. If you really, really love God, you watch the Outdoor Channel, right? You know what I'm talking about? And, and that's all. But I was flipping through the channels, and I landed on some program, you know, because it fits the sermon. And uh, I think that I kind of chuckle inside when I hear that. Or, or, or some, some will say, you know, Way back when, I used to struggle with this problem, but, but, but now I've arrived and now I have the, the platform to share with you what I've learned and I have arrived. And so I do think that some degree we need to be share out of our wins and our successes because God does, God gives us victory, amen? God gives us victory and so I can share out of some victory, but I can also tell you that I'm still a work in progress and God is still refining and shaping Chris Puccini. And so from that uh, paradigm, I want to share with you a little bit about my uh, my life. Just real quick, I'm going to tell you the issue I have, and we're going to look at how the Word of God applies to us in this area of our life. I was called to be to a ministry when I was really young. I was raised in a pastor's home. My mom and dad loved Jesus, so I was in the environment of going to church. And I remember about 13, 14 years old being at a, a youth rally in Missouri, and I came to an altar like this. Don't remember the sermon, but I remember God just impressing upon me uh, this, what we use the word called, this calling of God to ministry. And God said, Chris, I have a purpose and plan for your life, and I want you to give your life uh, to build the kingdom of God. And so I remember that call of God in my life and many great encounters with God, going to youth group, going to children's church and, and youth, youth camps and all those kinds of things, and just church. I mean, God just showed up at church, right? And didn't have to go off the camp all the time for God to show up at church and had some amazing encounters with God. Yet I developed, I started to develop a skewed view of God, partly because just uh, the background that I was raised in uh, loved God, but it leaned a little bit, a little bit to the side of, of, of works and that holiness works, which I believe in holiness, but we can get into the, the whole idea that uh, there's something that I do that earns God's favor, right? So I developed this skewed view of God, and so here's how it played out. I knew God loved me, I, I just knew that. I, f- I even felt God loved me and I loved God back, but I wasn't too sure that God liked me. And I wasn't too sure that, that I could measure up, that God would be pleased with me, that the things that I was doing would please God. And, and what happened was I developed an insecurity in my life, an insecurity that started with, um, God, I'm not sure that I can measure up to your standard. I'm not sure you're pleased with me. And that started to, do, that started to move into relationships with other people. I started to develop a, a cynical view of the motive of others because I had insecurity in my own life uh, between God and me. I wasn't sure about how God felt, and so that I, didn't, I wasn't so sure about other people's motives towards me. And ironically, I developed a jaded, um, motive, some jaded motives in how I dealt with other people. Isn't that interesting how that works? You start to uh, judge people's motives towards you, and it plays out to your motives towards them. And it all was kind of rooted in my insecurity and pride that started to manifest in my motives relationally with other people. And, and one of the ways that it played out is I had very little grace for people in my life who failed. Because for me, failure seemed so defining and final 
and I struggled with that, but I, you know, I kept it all in, and, and I, I put that off on other people because that's how I judged myself. I judged other people in many ways when they failed around me. And thank God he did a major overhaul in my life. The sermon's not all about me, or we'd be here for a long time, and, and you guys would you start to go to sleep, right? But God did a major overhaul on my life, and in 1994, I, I began to pursue God uh, more so than ministry because I spent some years running from God, and I went to North Central University to pursue ministry. And, but wouldn't you know it, God continued, even though he did this major overhaul, realigned my life, I began to find more and more of my identity in Christ and security in my relationship with God. He continued to chip away at the core issues in my life of pride and insecurity that manifested in my motives for why I did things. Why, why I wanted people to see me in a certain light or, or my wife later on in a certain light and what were my motives towards other people. And I remember specifically this culminating, actually God's still working on me, right? But I remember this watershed moment in my life. In fact, I was sitting in Pastor Wine's office. It's now Pastor Jeff's office. And I was sharing with him some of these issues that I was dealing with and God just, I had an epiphany where, well, really it was like a two by four up against the face type of an epiphany where I realized here I am a pastor, I'm trying to uh, earn God and people's, you know, favor. And also at the same time, there was a lack of, because of that, there was a lack of genuine love for, for people. And, and what kind of revelation is that for a young, young man who is, who's vocationally a pastor and you realize, wow, I, I'm not really sure about my relationship with God as far as if, is he pleased with me and my motive towards other people is not generated out of love. I mean, that's convicting. I remember walking around this parking lot and just praying, God, would you for, first of all forgive me and would you take, God, I'm broken. Would you fix me? And God, would you help me to secure my identity in you and you alone and not what other people think, and, and not from a motive to try to please you in the sense that I got to do something to make you love me more, to be pleased with me. God, help me to find my, my, my identity in you and help me to love people purely. And it was a breakthrough moment in my life in this parking lot. And so today, you know, I'm deriving more and more of my significance in Christ, right? The, the, the edges are softer and my motives towards other people. But God is still working on me. And you know what? I know I'm not alone today because all of us are challenged to some degree in our motives, in how we treat other people, how we view other people. It's easy to make judgments, isn't it? I mean, we're talking first impression type judgments. It's, it's really easy to look at somebody and make a judgment. You, you, they walk in the door and you see them, you smell them, you hear them, and, and then you assign a feeling towards them and then eventually it becomes out in how you treat them. Maybe you, you accept them or reject them. Maybe you show favoritism towards them or, or you don't want to have anything to do with them. And, and so you look at somebody and then you feel something, you think something, and then words come out of your mouth and behaviors come out of your, your life, right? It's easy to go that way. Well, let me just give you a little example. This is a tip for guys. So guys sit up. This is, gonna, this is worth coming to church for to get this information right here, right? Never, okay, you, you, just, you just meet a woman, a lady, you look at her, never ever say, never ever ask, when are you expecting? <laughs> you make a ju judgment, you don't ever do that because I've been asked that before and it stings. Let me just tell you. <laughs> it's not, just don't do that. 
Let's, let's make it real. Somebody walks in the church or into your house or, or you walk into a restaurant and you see somebody that has a Husker t-shirt on and then somebody who has an Ohio State t-shirt on. All right, come on now. What judgment and feelings are you going to make towards them? Right? Yeah. Okay, let's, let's make it even, let, let's stir it up a little more. You're driving down the road. You got two cars in front of you. One has a NRA bumper sticker, and one has a PETA bumper sticker. All right, come on now. What feelings and judgments are you making about that person, and which one are you going to honk at? Right. Here's another judgment we can make: dads in the room, dads of especially teenage daughters. What feeling and judgment do you make about? Every single teenage boy that exists, all right? You know what I'm talking about? They call, you see them walking down, you know, even at church, you see them walking. What judgment and feeling do you make, right? You know what I'm talking about. Or a rich person, you, somebody, you know, rich is, is, uh, is all a perspective, right? But somebody in your, uh, based on your perspective, they're, they're rich, they're wealthy. And then someone who is poor or homeless or, man, they're really struggling, they're poor, they're poor versus rich. What, what type of judgments and feelings do you make towards those, those different kinds of people? Let me define this tension in the context of the church, and then we're going we're gonna to get to James in a moment, James chapter 2, because James is speaking to believers. So let's set the context in the context of the church. If you were able to choose who would attend your church, what kind of filters would you use? For those of you that are a part of life groups, and I believe everybody should be a part of a life group if you're able to, but if you were able to, if you would say, I'm going to, I'm going to be the one, it's going to be like the NFL draft, and I'm going to choose everybody who attends my life group and gets to be in my presence, right, and gets to be my friends and in our life group, I, I'm going to choose those people that I associate with. I'm going to, what type of people would you choose? You can see a common sin, I think, that we're not quick to admit is the sin of making preference or rejecting people based on external things. And we all have sliding scales, right? Too tall, too short, too big, too small, too beautiful, not so beautiful, right? Too rich, too poor, too spiritual, too worldly. And there's one word for it, if we were thinking about it, especially in the natural, there's one word for it, and it's this word shallow, right? We'd say that's very shallow, that your motives and how you treat other people and how you think about other people is driven by these external factors. We would say that is shallow. And those of us who are parents, we want our children to grow out of that shallow, immature immaturity of relationships, right? Uh, hopefully we do. We want them to be loving and accepting and believing. And, and I, I try to teach that to my kids, you know, to, to sit with the person that no one else is sitting with and to love the people that, that maybe are harder to love, right? We want our children to grow up through that relationally, but all of us, if we had admitted at one time or another, at some times in our life, we treat people with the same judgment. We make the same judgments, and it comes out in how we treat people. And the problem is very simple. It's not the problem is not that person. The problem is our sinful nature. We have a nature that's bent on selfish independence, and nothing has changed since the beginning of time because the sinful nature hasn't changed since the beginning of time. There's different expressions of it, but it all comes down to selfish, independent. It plays out in our motives, and then it comes out in our behaviors and how we treat people. 
So how many would agree that the sin of pride and insecurity that would start to affect my motives as a pastor and then how I treat people, whether I show some people with favoritism or rejection, would hinder my ability to be a pastor, to have influence on people and to help people know Jesus and grow in their walk with God? Absolutely. How many of you think that treating people with favoritism or disregard that those impure type of motives would damage our mission at New Life to see people step into a relationship with Jesus and grow onto maturity. Absolutely. Our motives and the foundational sins that, that pollute our motives are crucial. And so today, today I think hopefully we both, I've shared my struggle and hopefully you identify with maybe something you'd say, yeah, you know what, in my life I see that symptom sometimes. But how many are thankful that God knows stuff? I'm so thankful that God knows stuff and that he wants me to know some of his stuff. And today God's going to share some of what he knows. And so we're going to go to the book of James. James, again, the half-brother of Jesus, pastor in the first century uh, church. He's writing to these Jewish converts to Christianity, fairly new converts to Christianity. And their leader, Stephen, was murdered because of his faith. And so it created this dispersion of a lot of these Jews from Jerusalem, and they were all over Israel, hiding. Some people had they left their homes and their livelihoods. And so most of them were in a poor state, and they were being oppressed, if you read the context of James, oppressed by rich people, taken to court. I mean, they were being abused. And so he's writing this letter to them, and it begins to deal with this symptom that I think all of us can identify with, and that's our motives, our selfish motives. And then he begins to deal with how faith needs to collide with our motives. And so here's what he says in James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith. And this is crucial. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so you get this idea that we have a glorious God. He is full of glory. And as you hold on to faith in him, don't show favoritism. Don't show partiality. It's a command. Your version may say, how can you really be a Christian if you do that? But, but in a more literal translation, it's a commandment like we hit, read here. Show no partiality. It's a command. And it's also a principle for how authentic faith collides with real life. Authentic, real spirit faith collides with real life, and it should bear fruit in our actions, now our motives towards how we treat other people. That word partiality or favoritism literally means in the New Testament Greek to receive by face. And so he's saying, don't do that. To receive by face is this sense of I'm going to accept you or I'm going to make a judgment on you based on the external things, how you look, Right? How you, what, what your race is, what your socioeconomic uh, status is. And James says, don't do that. He commands it. And he goes on. He says, so, suppose someone comes into church. He doesn't use the word church, but he uses the word synagogue because the church there, the new Christians, is so early on in the New Testament church, the birth of it, they were, he still uses that word synagogue. And so he says, suppose someone comes in and they're wearing gold and fine clothes. And so if somebody comes in at that time, they're wearing gold and fine clothes, what would be the judgment? Well, they're wealthy. Because in those, at that time, there's no middle class, right? There, there's no middle class. Either you're rich or you're poor. So someone comes in and they're wearing gold and fine clothes and you make that immediate judgment. It's just an intellectual judgment right now. It's just a logical judgment that they're wealthy, that they have money. And so if you're poor... If you're poor, 
You, you may be motivated to show them favoritism and say, hey, come and sit by me, right? Come and sit by me. Or, or you want to blow smoke at them, right? You want to inflate their ego. You want to make them feel good. Why? Because you, you might be motivated by their money, that I could gain favor with them if I treat them well. Or if you're a rich person and a rich person comes in, you show them favoritism. Why? Because they're just like me and all these other people are beneath me. Flip it over, someone comes in and they're poor. And you know it because you see it by based on the external things. And, and, and he says, and, and if you reject them, don't do that. Why? Why do, why do people do that? Why do people reject people that may be poor? Because either they are not like me or they cannot do anything for me. And James is going to get to the heart of the matter. What's the motive behind that? But he begins, he begins by saying, don't do it. And we begin to see this shallow, immature, um, relational motives begin to be illustrated with James. And as I just kind of set up this message, this, this immaturity in relationship. And, and I believe we need to allow faith to collide with those motives so that maturity can come. In fact, that's, that's the sermon in one sentence. You can write this down if you're taking notes. When faith collides with my motives, I grow up. Has, has God ever told you to grow up? Am I the only one? God says, Chris, it's time to grow up. Yeah, absolutely. If, if God has never said that, then you haven't read, read the Bible. Because his desire is that we would grow up, that we would mature. In fact, just to break a little bit of the tension that I see in the room, just turn to your neighbor and say, it's time to grow up. Come on. It's time to, oh yeah, you don't want to say it to your spouse, right? It's tell your spouse, it's time for me to grow up, right? All right there we go. And so James says, as you hold on to the faith, as you hold on, don't show partiality or favoritism. You see, you cannot wrap your hand and, onto faith and hold it up and hold on to faith while at the same time wrapping your hand and holding firmly and say, yeah, I believe, I trust, but holding on to the sinful nature with clenched fists. James is trying to illustrate this. Let that go as you hold on to the faith. Put into action. Let faith collide with your motives and grow up relationally. Let me, let me illustrate just a little further man's way of thinking versus God's way of thinking. In the history of the Old Testament, Israel, we learn a lot about Israel in the Old Testament. And they had a king. God never had designed them from the beginning to have a king. They demanded a king, so he set Saul up as a king who was a righteous king in the beginning, but he went downhill pretty fast because of pride and insecurity, ironically. And God wanted to replace Saul as king, and so he was going to choose another king. And he, a prophet, he sent out to find the king, and he, and he gives him some instruction, this prophet. He told the prophet, don't look at his external appearance. In other words, don't be looking for the guy that has the best resume. Look what he says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. Isn't that so true? Left to our own devices, we would be so consumed with external things. We would miss what really matters most. Let me just tell you this. God does not care. God does not care. If you bought your clothes at a high-end department store or a second-hand store, God doesn't care about external things. Man does. We, we even set up our own rules, right? If you love God, you're going to look this way. God, let me just free you of that if you can get free of this. God does not care about those external things. He says man looks at that. 
And so let's stop trying. Some of us need to stop trying to impress God. Doesn't mean we don't have honor and reverence, right? But let's stop trying to impress God because God is really concerned about your heart. And so, I mean, isn't for parents, isn't this what we're trying to teach our kids? At least my parents, they were godly. And so they tried to teach me this, right? That God doesn't care what you wear. And so I wanted, when I was a kid, this is going to identify all the people that are in that 40-year-old range. I wanted Jordash jeans. Come on now. How many remember Jordash jeans and parachute pants? Yeah. But I, I didn't get any parachute pants, right? And I didn't get Jordash jeans. You know what I got? I got rustler jeans. They were the cheapest jeans at Walmart. You know what I'm talking about, Dave? I, I see one of my friends shaking his head. Uh, and in, when I was in high school, middle school and high school, the cool thing was to have your, your jeans tight rolled at the bottom. And if you had the really cool jeans, you know, they were already kind of really tight at the bottom. But I had the big bell bottom, right? You know, boot cut, boot cut. They were bell bottom rustler jeans. But my parents were trying to teach me the Lord. The Lord is just looking at your heart, Chris, right? That's what our parents were trying to do. I'm being facetious, um, but it's true. God looks at the heart. He looks at the heart, but people, we look at external things and we get caught up on that. That's why man created religion. Let me emphasize it. Man created religion is so fascinated and focuses so intently on external appearance. You know, Jesus said this to the the self-righteous in Matthew 23. He said in verse 28, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Quickly, the context, they appeared righteous because they they were dressing right, they were acting right, or what other people would think as righteous. They were walking or talking the talk, but he knew on the inside they were messed up. So, I lost my place. Have you ever done that before? So that's what God's word says, says to us. I totally lost my place, and this is gonna this is gonna this is gonna mess me up, guys. Where was I? Bring it up, Matthew twenty three. All right, am I turning red? Oh man, this is crazy. And my mom is watching this. Oh my goodness! Wow. And I'm a professional. All right. So. Here's what we need. Here's what, here's what I need. I, know, I don't know about you, but I need God's word to come and wash over me. It even convict me sometimes. And it's okay at church. I mean, we love, we love you right where we are, but we say this, we love you too much to leave you where you're at. God's word is the same thing. We need to allow God's word to wash over us, even bring conviction to us so that we can realign with his way. So let's go back to our text in James chapter 2, verse 9. It says this, but if you show partiality or favoritism, you are committing what? Sin. And are convicted by the law as as transgressors. So someone comes in and you show favoritism in the story he gives, the metaphor he gives. You are sinning. He just comes straight up. Don't you hate it when people do that? It's like, oh, don't judge me, right? You don't know. But I love it that this is the word of God. And it brings conviction. If we allow it to. He says it's sin. And so James, he tells us what not to do. And I believe, again, the core issue is the motive behind it. Don't do it because it's sin. Right? 
It's not in alignment with the character and the nature and the values of God that we are to clothe ourselves with righteousness and pursue him. But he also tells us how to replace those sinful motives and then the behaviors that they they produce. Replace them with pure motives in verse 8, just the previous verse. If you are really, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Love your neighbor as yourself. Instead of showing partiality, love your neighbor as yourself. And he uses this term royal law. Now that means it's a royal law. It means that it's a law given by a king. And it's interesting that when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, obey that royal law, he is using, he's referring, and he's actually quoting his brother, Jesus, the king. Jesus gave the royal law in Matthew 22 Verse 37, it begins, Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. So he quotes his brother and he says, if you do that, you will do well. So you heard a little bit of my story. We kind of shared a little bit of Maybe what we all wrestle with to one degree or another, we said, here's what God has to say about it. Now, what do you do with it? What do you do with what God has said about this? What would happen for you if you secured your identity in one relationship, and that's in Jesus Christ? That you found security in who you were in Christ, what he thought of you and knew about you and believed in you. Instead of trying to please him, that you found, you found security in the law of liberty we're going to talk about in a moment. That I am saved by God's amazing grace through my faith in him. And it's not of my works, but because he has saved me, I want to, I want to, do, I want to please him. I want to honor him. I want to live for him. What if you secured your identity in that one relationship and not in what other people think or what other people could do for you? What would happen? What if you crucified pride and selfish ambition, you put it to death, and there was a collision of faith with your motives? You know what would happen? There would be an eruption of pure love, and your motives would become refined, and how you saw people would become, how you viewed people, and the judgments you made would start to fade away. I really believe that. Here's what happens. Once again, this is the, the whole sermon in one sentence. When, when faith collides with my motives, I grow up. And for some of us, it's time to grow up relationally because we need, allow, we need to allow faith to collide with those motives. Recognize there's a shallow immaturity. There's a selfish independence that, that has invaded me. Even though I love God, I see this. I see this temptation to manipulate people, to, to show favoritism. And God says, don't do that. Isn't it one of the goals of being a disciple is to reach maturity, right? Is to mature in the faith, is to, to grow up in the faith. And some, of you, some of you need to take this to heart. You, I mean, you're great at making friends, but because your motives are, are messed up, you, you can't maintain relationships. You can't manage relationships. And God wants a f- collision of faith with those motives that, that pure love would drive those motives, and it would revolutionize your relationships. You see, real, pay, real faith, real faith, real faith has the power to invade my motives, purify my motives. And I can grow up and begin to love people more, more purely. But I just got to be honest because I'm still working on progress. Some people are hard to love, right? I know I'm hard to love sometimes. 
you know, once a year or two, twice a year. It's hard to love me, you know, when I have a bad day. It's hard to love. Why is it hard to love some people? Because, I don't know, for me, because sometimes people annoy me. You ever, you ever thought you'd hear a pastor or a preacher say that, right? Sometimes people annoy me. It's true. And it's true. I annoy you sometimes, right? And there's other people, and you would have to admit that. And you're feeling uncomfortable admitting that at church. But that, that at the core of our sinful nature is why it's sometimes hard. Because there's things that come up that I don't like. They don't make me feel good. They don't make me feel comfortable. It's going to cost me something because I'm, they're going to abuse me. And so it's hard to love them. It's true. It's hard to love people. And there was a theologian that had the same issue, I believe. He was coming in contact with Jesus. Do we really need to love everybody? And here's what happens. He, he says, he basically, Jesus, what do I need to do to make eternity? And, and Jesus classically puts it back to him. Well, what do you think? And, he, and he's a theologian. Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He gives the great, the great answer. And Jesus said, yeah, you got it. Go do that. But then the man comes back and looks what happened. Look what happens in Luke 10, verse 29. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He, he wanted to get technical with Jesus. Well, well, who's my neighbor? Do I really need to love everybody? You see, I think for you and for me, if we stopped making excuses and allowed faith to glide with our motives, there would be an explosion of pure love for other people. And we would begin to grow up and we would begin to stop making excuses of why people can't come into our spheres of relationships or even our church. Or we would stop making excuses and we would be changed from the inside out. And I believe the final piece to the puzzle as I approach a landing here today is found in verse 12 of James chapter 2. It says this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And let me just say, I don't have time to expound on it, but the law of liberty is the law you want to be judged under. You can go back to James chapter 1 verse 25, read a little bit more about that. Send me an email. I can share a little bit more about what is that all about. But it's the law that brings freedom, the law of liberty. It's the law that brings freedom. The old law was imperfect before Jesus died and rose again. Um, it, the old law was imperfect, but the perfect law, Jesus went to the cross, the sinless lamb of God, and he made a way that we might be saved by grace through faith, and this not of our works, so that we can't brag about it. That God did it, and his his grace, his saving grace brings us liberty. It's that law that while I was still a sinner, Romans 5, 8, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. That's the law of liberty. And, and so if I so speak, then so act as one who is going to be looked at by God through the lens of I loved you so much, I forgave you so much, so go and act that way. If my motives are driven by the law of liberty, that means, that means that I will be judged by whether I have an authentic faith at work in my life. You see, the law of liberty says to the Christians, you are, you, Christian, you were created to do good works. You were created, the Bible says, in Christ Jesus to do good works. That amazing, authentic faith, if you are saved, it's authentic faith that, that's, that caused that grace of God to be applied that transaction happened that you might do good works and glorify God. So when faith collides with my motives, guys, I grow up. My motives are transformed. And James says that if you love this way, you are doing well. How many want to do well? 
How many want to stand before God one day and hear him say, well done? That's in the Bible. And so that's how it impacts you. How does it impact us? You know, one of the hallmarks of the church, capital C, God's church, is the law of liberty causes us to love people purely. Because I have been forgiven, I must forgive. Because I have been loved, I will love. And I'm so glad to be a part of a church called New Life who has a great history. It's in the DNA of who we are to love people, to love people right where they are without showing partiality or favoritism. Do we fail and stumble? Absolutely. Do even uh, we as leaders? Absolutely. But at the core and the drive of who we are, we want to love people purely. And so what would happen, all of us, and in Kearney and in a North Platte, what would happen? And wherever else God is allowing us to, in the future, to plant other churches and to influence for the kingdom of God, if we committed more, more, more resolutely, we committed ourselves to have a culture where faith collides with our motives and we love people purely, we show, don't show any favoritism. I think there would be a revolution of God-birthed love for people that would be contagious and we would continue to grow, as Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says, grow in love and in good deeds. At all of our locations right now, here in Kearney, in the venue at North Platte, those of you listening online, every new lifer, would you just lean in? Just lean in and listen. Love is attractive. Love is attractive. Selfishness, insecurity, manipulation, greed, Self-righteousness is repulsive. Not only is it repulsive to God, but we will never reach people. But love, authentic love, is attractive. And it's what God is looking for, to purify our motives that we can love purely. And some of us today, as we get ready to respond to the Lord, we need to say, God, I'm convicted. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts the world of guilt in regard to sin. Say, God, I'm guilty. Forgive me. Help me to identify, find my identity firmly in you and help me to love completely and love purely. Would you come and refine my motives? As we respond today, this message was very narrow, but if we would focus on how God wants to transform our motives and faith to collide with our motives, that launches into so many other areas of our life, so many other things that come out of our life because of our motives. And if we allow faith to collide with our motives, we would be transformed and we would see transformation continue to just blow up all over the place. Let's stand. Father, today we want to allow faith to collide with our motives. Father, we want to move on to maturity. And many of us, all of us, we're at various locations and coordinates on that spiritual growth continuum. Some of us, we've been walking with you. We've been in church, for example, for far too long to be at the spiritual growth stage, the maturity stage that we're at when it comes to our motives. And we want to say, God, would you come in and change us? Would you break things that, that, that have, have us in bondage? And would you fast forward our spiritual journey? Some of us, Lord, just for how long we've been walking, we're right where we need to be, but you've called us to take another step. Would you purify our motives towards other people that are in the same room that we're in right now? The people where we work, the friendships that we have, may we love completely. Would you come 
Would you forgive us? Would you cleanse us? And as we respond today at an altar, perhaps would you come and meet with us? We want to respond to what you're saying right now. What do we need to do, God? And it all starts, I really believe it all starts by saying, God, you're the author and perfecter of our faith. And so would you come and bring your faith? Would you do your work in me? May we realize that your word, as it lays over our life, that as we cooperate with your word, it, it often hurts before it heals. But God, the pain of the same is greater than the pain of the gain today. And we want to say, God, do your work. Pull it out of me. Make me more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.